And please turn in your Bibles to the book of James. We're continuing our exposition through the book of James. You have an insert in your bulletin that has uh, the Scripture verses we'll be looking at, but you also may want to jump around in some other references. You may be nervous as you look at this seven-point sermon. A Presbyterian can come up with three points. You know, that's Trinitarian. Five points because we're Calvinists. Seven points because seven is the perfect number. So I'm telling you, it's going to be a um, legit biblical sermon today. But as we look at the book of James, we've been challenged that James' goal is to instruct us on how to live out our faith. That faith is a gift of God. It comes through Him, God borning us again, regenerating us. But when He's done a legitimate work of salvation in our lives, our lives look different we start to bear fruit that evidences that that faith is genuine. It is the gift of God. And we see this major struggle that James has confronted our tendency at the end of chapter 3 and in the beginning of chapter 4, our tendency towards selfish ambi ambition, bitter jealousy, envy, and how it affects our relationships. It's, it's in fact, what causes fights and quarrels among us? It's these desires that we want something, and we're jealous, and we have this envy. And really, what he's boiling it down to is the fact that our infatuation for the things of this world is second only to our infatuation for ourselves, what I want, when I want it, and I want it now. And that self-centered desire is a form of, at its base form, it's pride. It's pride. And the only solution to defeat our pride is, is God's warning that He will oppose our pride, but even more, His promise that He gives grace to the humble. And God gives more grace. And that's where we're going to start today. But He follows through in verses 7 through 10, as one commentator noted, 10 imperative verbs that clearly signify that James is issuing an urgent call to his readers to repent from their ungodly behaviors described in the previous passages. And so, like a commanding general, James issues a series of curt military-like commands which call for incisive action. The command to submit is basic to the requirement, which must precede obedience to the subsequent commands. Proud hearers won't submit and surely won't obey any other commands. Humble people, on the other hand, will submit and obey. So follow along as I read God's holy and inspired Word, James 4, 6 through 10. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves therefore before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now before Your Word, we see difficult words. We hear challenging words, warnings. Lord, we want to be faithful hearers of Your Word. We want to heed Your warning, and we want to 
follow Your commands. Uh, Lord, we know that in our flesh we are weak, but we confess that You are strong. We confess that the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And so we have hope, not in ourselves, not in our wisdom, not in our abilities, but merely in the fact that we have been indwelt by Your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of wisdom. Lord, enlighten our eyes and our minds to the truth of Your Word. Empower our hands and our feet to live it out as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We got to review verse 6 that God gives more grace. We don't spend enough time contemplating God's amazing grace. In fact, when you sing that hymn, sometimes we just kind of drift off into automatic zone and we sing those words without even contemplating the profound nature of God's grace towards us. Sinners who deserve His wrath have been shown mercy and grace because of Christ. He gives more grace. Thomas Manton, a Puritan author said that he gives more grace, and here more means better. And so often in Scriptures, if you want to see God in a humble manner, you want to be acquainted with the richer things. You don't want to envy and contend with one another about external pleasures. What the world gives is not comparable to with what God gives. God gives more grace. Jesus says, I don't give to you as the world gives in John 14, 27. I give more excellent blessings. Manton goes on to say, the main reason that people dote on the world is because they are not acquainted with a higher glory. People ate acorns until they were acquainted with the use of corn. The candle is very useful until the sun rises. We do not have a right apprehension of grace until we can see that it yields us more than the world can. Created things give us temporary refreshment, and the world serves its time, but grace brings full and everlasting joy. Let's just start off with God's grace and how powerfully that should encourage us, that He gives more grace. He's not stingy with grace. He doesn't say, well, I'll give you a little bit. You use that up and come back to me if you need. He just gives it lavishly and more grace. But in the context of that blessing, he also gives a warning. The next words out of James's mouth, therefore it says, God opposes the proud. It's a warning, it's a threat, that if you remain in pride, God will come against you. Why is God so wrapped up about pride? Why is pride one of the detestable sins that God hates? Why is He so against it? Manton goes on to say, the Lord hates it because it's a sin that sets itself most against Him. Other sins are against God's law. This is against His being, against His sovereignty. Pride not only withdraws the heart from God, but it lifts it against God. Someone asked a philosopher what God was doing, and he answered that His whole work was to lift up the humble and to cast down the proud. This is the very business of providence. The Bible is full of examples. Pharaoh, Herod, Haman, Nebuchadnezzar, 
enemies of God, but even His children who rise up in in pride, David, Uzziah, Hezekiah, God will come against even His children to shake them loose of their pride, to break them of their pride. Now, ask yourself this question, do I struggle with pride? It's easy for me to divert and say, well, I'm not that egotistical maniac narcissist who's up there boasting about all my accomplishments and saying all these grandiose things about myself. That's not me. I'm more reserved than that. But you don't have to be a pompous jerk to be a prideful person. It's easy enough to be subtle in your pride. To be self-reliant is to be prideful. To have to control every situation is to be prideful. To want it your way and then to look down on everybody else who doesn't do it your way is just as much prideful. We have to be honest with ourselves that we struggle with pride and that God will oppose that pride because it's a direct attack to His Godhood, to His sovereignty, to His kingship. And so, we want to be realizing the problem that is the deepest problem is me. It's my pride. It's how I see myself. But we will see from this passage that grace-enabled humility will give us our battle plan to defeat our enemies. This is grace-enabled because God gives more grace. And it's a battle plan because here He comes with point after point after point, command in the aorist tense, imperative verbs, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And they're grounded in what's true. So we know the grace of God is what compels us and what motivates us. And it comes on display in verse 7, the very first part, submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission is not a popular word today. Can we just be honest about that? Submission to governments, submission to authorities, submission in the household. Because of the abuses of power and the misuses of power, it's so easy for us to just throw it all out. We don't want any structure of authority in our lives. And as you know, independent American individuals, we like to have it our way, and we don't like to be told what to do. Can we be honest about that? The Word of God says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And that is a command that is rooted in the fact that He is worth submitting to. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Creator of all things. You didn't vote for Him. He just is. He is who He has revealed Himself to be, and He's worthy to be submitted to. And I like to see this word submit in terms of an active allegiance, a willing enlistment. The captain of your team has called you to be on his team. Play for this superior captain, because there's only two teams As we're going to see in the second half of the verse, we need to resist the devil because that's the other team. And if you don't acknowledge and submit yourself to Christ as your king, by default, there's no middle ground. You're serving the devil. 
That's harsh. That, that seems too black and white. Yeah. Well, that's the way that God has designed us as all creatures to live in humble worship of our Creator. And we're made to worship, and we're going to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping our own desires. And the devil is at the root of all those prideful decisions. It was his pride that got him in trouble. As we look at submitting to God, it's coming under his kingship. And when we look at our Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 24 asks, what, uh, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it's, it's helpful for us as it summarizes Christ's kingship is that Christ exercises the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. It starts with subduing us to Himself. That's a similar word to submit. And it's a both-and proposition. We are in our rebellious, sinful nature living for ourselves. We are the king. But the true king has to come in, take out that heart of self and of, flat, of stone, and give us a new heart that, that beats for Him. And as He gives us this change of heart, then we can willingly and actively submit to our God. We can follow Him. You know, we were once under the tyranny of Satan, under His power, the power of this, uh, the spirit of this age. But we've become now subjects to a new kingdom. We have a new king, a superior king. We're called to now resist the devil. The second half of verse 7 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. This week, my wife and I got to go to a bed and breakfast that we like to go to to celebrate our anniversary, and a dear Christian woman runs this bed and breakfast. She was telling us a story the other day of someone who came in as a visitor who was a Christian and was talking with the owner saying, I don't know, I had some bad feelings when I was going around in a few of the rooms. You might have had somebody here that brought in an evil spirit, and I could see the devils, I can see the demons, and I spoke them in the name of Jesus to come out of those rooms, and I exercised those demons from your bed and breakfast. The uh, owner was a little incredulous and didn't want to go down that road too far and just kind of, I think, simply thanked her and kind of moved on. I think one understanding of how, how do we resist the devil will, will devolve into something that is more magical and mystical. I, I like how C.S. Lewis helps to, I don't know, keep us straight here. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors which our race can fall into about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or a magician with the same delight. Lewis suggests a balanced approach. We shouldn't become obsessed with the devil, but neither should we naively dismiss him as a vestige of prim primitive superstition. The devil's real. How, how do we come to understand what is real about the devil? 
Well, the Word of God tells us. The Word of God explains to us His origin, His nature, gives us the various titles that He goes by. It shows us some of His tactics, some of His wiles, what He does. Let me just give you a brief overview. He's powerful like a roaring lion seeking to devour. His domain is the ruler of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this age. He's deceitful because he masquerades as an angel of light, not a red suit, pitchfork, and horns. He's a liar. He's called the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. In fact, his name, Satan, Satan, means slanderer. He's the tempter, the serpent from the garden, the dragon of revelation. He's not equal with God. He is a created being. He's a fallen angel known as Lucifer. He rebelled against God in his pride, desiring to be God, and he took other angels with him when he fell, known as demons. He's limited. He's restrained by God. He doesn't have independent power. In a, in a list of opposites, light and dark, God and Satan is not God's opposite. Satan is a creature. God is creator. He's overall. He is not equal with in any sense. Jesus met the devil and defeated him. In Matthew 4, we know he was tempted by the devil. And every time he answered the devil, what did he say? It is written. This is the truth. Hear the truth. Because his nature is a liar. He perverts and twists the truth to get us off track. Paul's tactic is the same. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The battle isn't in some magical, mystical realm. The battle is in your mind to believe the lies or to hear the truth. And to embrace the truth is to fight against the lies. The lies that you've believed again and again and again become those strongholds that Satan used to keep you deceived, to keep you ineffective, to keep you pinned down. Well, I know that they think the worst about me. Really? How do you know that? You're making that up. That's a lie that the devil is happy for you to believe so that you stay defeated and full of shame, full of false guilt. He's the father of life, lies. He's perfected his trade. Put on the full armor of God, as Ephesians 6 says. I don't have time to go into every part, but the, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. Learn how to use the truth of God's Word to defeat the lies of the evil one. So resist him. Don't just give over. Don't just give up. Don't just be held captive in this stronghold. You take thoughts captive unto obedience to Christ. Thomas Manton said, resist the devil by faith, by prayer, by self-control, by watchfulness, by sincerity. Either you must resist him or be taken ca captive be by him. There's no middle course. But here's the good news. Christ has foiled the enemy. He's put weapons in your hands so that you may foil him. He 
tried on, his old, on this old serpent when his heel was struck on the cross. Now he wants you to set your feet on his neck. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb the word of their testimony, that they didn't love their lives even to the point of death. We see that God's graciously defeated Satan on the cross, but He wants us to squash out every single lie of that father of lies so that we can live in obedience to Christ. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. Verse 8 then draws us back to this battle and You've submitted to Christ, submitting to God. He's your king. Resist the devil, and you need to draw near to your captain in the battle. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It's deliberately cultivating this fellowship with God. It's what we do on a weekly basis in covenant renewal to say, I'm coming back to you, Lord. I know I've wandered. I know I've sinned. I'm prone to that. Lord, draw me back to Yourself. What is it that draws you back to God? What draws you near to Him? It should be our time in God's Word just on our own. It should be those corporate times in God's Word. It should be times of prayer, prayer as a family, prayer as individuals, prayer as a church. When we come together in those ways, we're drawn near to God. And when we do so, we're enabled to obey. We're strengthened to obey. And we find this, this idea that we often want God to show up and to be really vivid in our lives, and then we'll draw near to Him. Seeing is believing. So, God, do something amazing and draw me to Yourself. And you know what? He will do that from time to time. Be, be, have your eyes open for when He does, but don't just wait around and say, oh, I need God to, to wow me and to awe, make me in awe so that I'll come and draw near to Him. No. Make use of the regular, ordinary means of God's grace to draw you close to Him. Christian fellowship, studying the Bible alone and together, devoting ourselves to reading God's Word, prayer, private, public, feasting at the Lord's table, baptism, all these things that keep drawing us, drawing us back to the Lord, singing rich music to the Lord, and praising Him. Don't underestimate those ordinary means of God's grace. As we draw near to God, we realize that we don't belong in His presence. Again, like covenant renewal, we, we see God in His glory and holiness, and we realize we're not. We need a cleansing. And that's where James tells us in verse 8 that we are to cleanse our hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, cleansing is what God calls His people who want to come into His presence. If you want to draw near to God, Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to a falsehood, who's not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Cleansing of our hands, is part of that work of repentance that God does in our lives. And that work of repentance 
is multifaceted, and it's so important if we're going to maintain communion with God. If we're going to draw near to God, we're going to mess up and we're going to sin. And so we need to learn how to come back, how to return, and that's what repentance is all about. Uh, Short of Catechism 87 talks about repentance unto life as a saving grace. It's God's work in us. It's not from within ourselves. So when God says to purify your heart, to cleanse your hands, He is enabling you by His grace to do that. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, not not a made up, not a minimized, not a blame shift, but a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You, you, You see the cross. You see my sin, but the cross is there because of my sin, and lest I lose hope, lest I be just prone to despair, I have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ so that when I see my sin, I know of Christ. And with a view of your sin, it's with grief and hatred of your sin that you turn to God and endeavor after with New, a full endeavor after new obedience. Your change is not just, I know I screwed up, I'm wrong, please forgive me. That's confession, and that's the first part of repentance. But the full endeavor after new obedience comes when you draw near to God. You submit to the king. You're resisting the devil, and you say, how do I now live? How will I be different because of the grace of God at work in my life? I won't be living for myself. I'm going to live for my king. I'm going to live to serve others. What does that look like as you cleanse your hands, your behavior, as you purify your hearts? To live a holy life, you have to have a clean heart. And that true conversion begins in the heart and it manifests in our lives. This purity of hearts is this um, imagery from the Old Testament of shalom. It's single-mindedness. It's unmixed. It's, it's pure. We all get distracted. We all have many things and desires on our, uh, before us, but when we're called to purify our hearts, the devotion of our hearts should be single-minded towards God. Now, it sounds like James is all against anybody being happy or laughing, but it's really not that way. He says, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's part of repentance, Uh, godly sorrow. It's different than worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is like that, and then you move on. But godly sorrow is a grace that pierces our hearts. I love how one author said that Sorrow does not work until it's deep and constant and the arrows stick fast into the soul. We must be held to it, to it. Slight sorrows are too soon cured. Mourning is a holy exercise by which the soul is weaned from sin more and more every day and drawn out to reach to God. So it checks those who content themselves with a hasty sigh, dismissing the matter. Do you really think this is grieving and mourning and wailing? Call to account the heart that is so shallow it wants to run into the house of mirth again straightway. It's, it's the escape that we go to. I don't know what it is for you, but there's the escape of 
not wanting to deal with my sin, not wanting to deal with those tough things and just numbing myself or escaping to some other reality. That's, that's the house of mirth. That's, that's where we just laugh things off and we don't deal seriously with our sin. James wants us to be serious about this battle and that there is more than just a, a public sh- display of repentance. You know, there would mourn and grieve, and in, in, in Jesus' day we see vivid pictures of what that looks like with sackcloth and ashes. And, and, and God wants your heart and not just your outward mourning, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. Every week when we come before our Lord, we need to mourn our sin. Finally, humble ourselves. Uh, Humility is going to happen one way or another. Manton says, the creature must be humbled either actively or passively. If you don't have a humble heart, God has a mighty hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. He will either break your heart or break the bones. You must judge yourselves or, or else God will judge you. He's so, he's so patient. He is so merciful. He's so long-suffering, but he has to oppose that treason in our hearts that is pride. And he has to rid us of that pride, and he will, by giving us humility. How do we cultivate humility? Uh, One pastor gave these uh, ten points that I would give to you. I've I've tried to implement them in my life, and and there's a bonus one I want to give you. Study the attributes of God especially His incommunicable attributes, the ways in which only God is that way. Reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. Study the doctrines of grace. Study the doctrine of sin. Engage in the means of grace regularly. Invite and pursue correction from others. Encourage and serve others each and every day. Identify evidences of grace in other people. Recognize your relative unimportance. And laugh with others when you are the object of humor. The bonus is take a walk in the cemetery from time to time. I was peering over the fence this morning and saw a mound of dirt where somebody took the cut red roses and cut white roses and put them into the mound of dirt, covered it over, another mound of dirt in the distance. And during the week, I saw the crowds of people, the cars and cars, and those people came to mourn, came to grieve. There's a body at the bottom of that hole. Life is short, and we need to do business with God, if we're living in rebellion, if we're living in pride, if we're living even in the most subtle ways for ourselves, eternity is a long time. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. Practice repentance both in your heart and in your life. Humble yourself before the Lord. I'll leave you with The hymn written by Francis Havergal says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift 
and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with sweet messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as Thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it Thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is Thine own, it shall be Thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at Thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. Let's pray. Father, take our lives. We submit ourselves to You. You are entirely worthy of all creatures in this world to submit to You, but You have set Your love on Your children so that we would particularly treasure You, that we would love You and draw near to You. Lord, I pray in our battle with sin, in our battle with the flesh, in our battle with the lies of the devil, in our battle with the lies of the world, Lord, that You would enable us, strengthen us, and give us the ability to follow you in all your ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.